Okay, hello and welcome to the final panel of today. Um, my name is Jack Kavanagh. I'm filling in for Linda Connolly, who unfortunately was not able to chair this panel. Um, we have two speakers today, uh, Eva Kelly Whitsitt from the Department of Education here at Maynooth University, and Trina Water from the Department of History at Mary I in Limerick. And uh, without further ado, I'd just like them to start. Could you start? Yeah. Perfect. So, thank you everyone. I just want to say from the outset that this um, paper is not actually my project for a PhD, but um, it is a result in part of my work that I do in an emergency resettlement and orientation centre, which is set up for Syrians that arrive in Ireland. They stay there for a short period of time before moving on to their new homes. And it's also influenced by my interest in decolonial and critical feminist theory. So, um, you can see the title, Institutionalisation in Ireland, a History and Continuation of Attempts to Silence Marginalised People. Um, along with decolonial and critical feminist theory, um, policy documents are going to form the central argument of my paper, which is that institutional practices carried over from a collective past continue to attempt to silence women and refugees in contemporary Irish society. Drawing on the work of Penelope Ingram, among others, this paper is about the intersections of gender and race and the ethics of difference. The specific conditions that give rise to representational frames placed on marginalised people both historically and continuing in present day will be questioned through an examination of the institutionalisation that continues to serve as a silence mechanism. I aim to provide a brief overview, historical overview, of church and state institutional practices and the impact of these at the time. Further to this, I will analyse how such foundations encouraged and enabled the attempts to silence marginalised people, in this case, women and refugees. I will focus on educational, welfare and medical institutions, which were influenced by and run under church and state policies and practices, which up until very recently in Ireland were closely aligned. So at its most basic form, we have the definition of institutionalization, the action of establishing something as a convention or norm in an organization or culture. Harmful effects such as apathy and loss of independence arising from spending a long time in an institution are the negative effects. And one considers the quote from Roy underneath, there's no, really no such thing as voiceless. They're only the deliberately silenced or preferably unheard. We can argue that a direct link can be made between institutionalisation and attempts to silence women and refugees in Ireland. To start, if we look at the Board of Commissioners for Education, that's the national system that was introduced through the Stanley Letter in 1831, we're actually looking at the first formal system of education in Ireland introduced under colonial rule. There was no similar system in place in Britain or any of its colonies and in many ways, you could say that Ireland was the guinea pig where this was trialled um, before further expansion into other British colonies. The implementation of the national system can be seen as a response from the government to the freedom and autonomy of the hedge schools, which although illegal and operating under difficult circumstances, still proved a threat to the colonial ideology and desire for submissive, compliant subjects. Arguably, from this point on in Ireland, education and in turn institutions became tools of power used to control and instill conformity. From now on, schools are seen as agents for socialisation and politicisation. 
They could be and were used for the purpose of cultural assimilation. So the excerpts on this slide taken from the described textbook used in all schools at the time highlights this. So if we pay particular attention to the language used, we can see how a representational frame is placed on the Irish students. So I thank the goodness and the grace which on my youth has smiled to make me in these Christian days a happy English child. Britain thou art my home, my rest, my own land, I love thee best. On the east of Ireland is England where the Queen lives. Many people who live in Ireland were born in England and we speak the same language and are called one nation. So quite interesting. While these examples don't directly relate to my chosen group of marginalised people, that is women and refugees, they do provide historic context and foundations of what was to come in terms of educational institutionalisation and clearly presents how a loss of independence and in turn repression of voice can result from spending a long time, that is your school years, in an institution. So if we skip forward 80 years, Ireland has won a hard-fought independence and the Department of Education was set up in 1924. It took a very nationalist approach, as you can see from the first quote, um, which is not very surprising considering the struggle that ensued beforehand. Um, what is interesting, however, is that like Britain, it continued to use education as a political tool of conformity. And the notable change to this is the place of religious orders and Catholicism in this. So Catholic children are taught in Catholic schools by Catholic teachers under Catholic control. Again, we can see from 1965 this was continued on. Religious instruction is by far the most important as its subject matter. If you look down the bottom, the primary duty of an educator, the moulding to perfect form of his pupil's character. And I'll let you read the rest yourselves. This period can be seen as a pivotal point in Irish educational institutions, wherein the Catholic Church was given power by the state for many generations of Irish children and allowed for the abuses we now all share as part of our collective guilt to happen. So, the Magdalen Laundries. These operated in Ireland for many years to look after fallen women. These are an example of the growing power of the church, supported by the state that was exerted over Irish females. They were initially opened in responses to the perceived problem of prostitution, with both the church and state failing to question or even address, or address or even question, <laughs> the poverty and social issues that led impoverished females to sell their bodies in order to survive. Instead, the laundries sought to represent the undesirable women as a threat to morality, remove them from public view, and deliberately silence their existence as the following excerpt from Fan Finnegan highlights. The issue of continued demand for prostitutes was barely confronted, so absorbed were moralists with the disgraceful and more evidence of supply. While acknowledging that poverty, overcrowded slum housing and lack of employment opportunities fuel the activity, they shirked the wider issues, insisting on individual moral rather than social reform. This term, fallen women, and the negative connotations associated with the title was quickly extended and adapted to cover unmarried mothers, hopeless cases, mental defectives, bastard and orphan children, as well as young girls who committed offences that would be seen as trivial in modern society with the aim of saving their souls. 
Women convicted of petty crimes were also often sent to the laundries by Irish courts, strengthening the collusion between church and state that the government has repeatedly tried to play down and cover up. The laundries moved to permanent confinement model from the 1920s onwards and rejected the rehabilitative aims of the first establishments. In effect, the reality was that this shift in purpose resulted in multi-generational cycles of girls being moved from industrial reformatory schools to laundries and thus spending their whole lives incarcerated under cruel practices where prayer, silence and penance were the foundations of existence. They also became sources of financial gain, which is important to note, as other Irish institutions such as the army paid to have their laundry done. The women and children received no pay for the long hours of labour they were forced to complete. Forced legal adoptions, mass graves, pain and suffering are now understood and accepted to be defining characteristics of laundries, reformatory and industrial schools. Locked doors, iron gates and guards in the form of the nuns who ran the institutions allowed for the horrendous abuse to become a norm or convention that we had from our quote, which went unquestioned or unnoticed by society at large. The last laundry in Ireland closed in 1996 in Dublin. It was not until 2013 that a public apology was issued to the survivors of Magdalene Laundries, and you can see this is from our then Taoiseach, Enda Kenny. The struggle the survivors face in being heard continues. The Catholic Church had, had further power and influence over women through their role in medical institutions, which was fully endorsed and supported by the state. Sexual repression and a disrespect for the female body are evident in the practices that historically and continually serve as silencing mechanisms of women. The medicalization of childbirth in the early 19th century was the title for a paper I wrote as an undergraduate. <coughs> At the time, I naively commended the hospitals and their patrons for providing a service for the poor women who were living in Dublin, and they neatly took them off the streets and allowed them to have their babies and everything was fine. I thought it was great. Um, <laughs> upon reflection, <laughs> I see this period as a catalyst for the loss of ownership of the female body, which has caused much pain and controversy continuing to this day. Drawing on Lacan's work, I argue that through this, women became a category within language to be spoken for and about, and there was further implications in that. Um, although I fully acknowledge the importance of medical advancements and interventions in childbirth, I really do, it is through the removal of labouring women from public sight and away from the support groups they had previously relied on that autonomy over the body was lost and decisions were made for women without their knowledge or consent. In effect, women were forced to conform to a desired practice of delivering their babies with childbirth, sex, and the female anatomy in general treated as a taboo subject in Irish society. Upon reflection, Ireland has a dark history of female reproductive healthcare. Symphysiotomy, I didn't know much about, but I really couldn't sleep after I learned a bit about it. It was declared a form of torture by the UN and declared barbaric. It was a practice of cutting away cartilage from the pubic bone to allow more room for delivery and was practiced in Ireland as late as the 80s. This procedure had lifelong devastating consequences for the women who were never asked or gave consent for the procedure to take place. The practice itself is thought to be influenced by Catholic teaching, so we make parts wider, more babies can come out, more Catholics, 
less need for birth control, etc., etc. Um, the hysterectomy scandal associated with Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, as documented in the 2006 report, which criticised the Catholic ethos in forbidding sterilisation contraception, is yet another example of systemic abuse of the female body in attempts to silence women who are led to believe that these procedures were necessary. Unquestionable, they were necessary. Yet, to this day, some of the biggest hospitals in Ireland are owned by religious orders. And when one considers the statement by the Bishop of Elphin in regard to this, that you can see, so Catholic hospitals, hospitals have a special responsibility. Public funding, while it brings with it other legal and moral obligations, does not change that responsibility. We can see the implications this could have both within a historical and a contemporary context. And if you look at the 2005 example from below, it's testament to that. So in 2005, lung cancer patients at the Matter Hospital were stopped from taking part in cancer trials because female patients who, get, uh, who could get pregnant were told to take contraceptives under the treatment, something that went against the hospital's Catholic ethos. So it had massive implications. The church and medical institutions were supporting these modes of oppression through policy and state legislation, such as the Eighth Amendment, which when introduced into the Constitution in 83, put a legal framework in place under which a woman's life, rather than health, must be in danger in order to receive the same care or treatment as her non-pregnant counterparts. And here we have some of the apologies. Apologies seem to be common after significant periods of time in relation to the symphysiotomy. So butchery against women, and scandals. In relation to refugees in Ireland, the historical role of institutions is limited. The decision of the Irish government during World War II to deny Jews asylum because of the fear of the social problems that would result indicates the fear of difference that continues to define our collective interaction with those of different faith, creed or race. The most notable influx of refugees from a historical perspective was that of the 541 Hungarians in 1956 following the failed uprising against communist rule. This was not successful at all. Basically, the refugees um, staged a hunger strike and they all eventually returned home. Um, the main objection of the Hungarians as noted in a news report from the time is that of the feeling of desolation. Additional media coverage blamed the strike and future departure of all the refugees on an obnoxious element and fractious minority. So the blame was placed back on the refugees. Little thought was given to the exclusion of the refugees from general society and the impact this exclusion had on their experience of Ireland. Um, the initial joy and reception that they got was replaced with apathy as well, which is highlighted in news reports from the time. So I've provided a very, very brief overview of some institutional foundations in Ireland which deliberately sought to silence marginalised people. Now I aim to look at the implications of these practices on women and refugees within contemporary society. With regard to refugees, I believe that what the large number of migrants are experiencing is a continuation and adaptation of the practices under which the 1956 Hungarians felt despair and eventually fled from. 
direct provision and Iraq stigmatise refugees and asylum seekers. I would argue that this is a type of internal colonisation as discussed by Ho and Guterres. Internal colonisation sees one dominant group within a country benefit through economic gains from the oppression of a group which they perceive as wholly different or other. When one considers the tendering processes and the large sums of money tied up in direct provision in Iraq, this reads true. The policy of privatisation in place enables dominant groups to exploit a minority for financial gain through varied accommodation and living standards provided to residents. Ironically, Ireland, which was colonised by the British, and as Spencer tells us in 1596 was full of barbarian Stevens, continues to create a third world within the first, something that Mayo talks about extensively. This happens through its rejection of non-European ways of being and knowing and through institutionalised segregation and the promotion of Eurocentric attitudes and values as superior to all else. Or to use the words of Ingram, an all-white male truth. Some examples of the institutional practices within the housing and education of refugees highlight silencing techniques used to ensure conformity amongst those that are wholly different others. At its most basic level, the epistemological and ontological development of the refugee children is being hindered by the segregation in classes which are inadequate to meet their needs. Irish children between the ages of 6 and 12 attend primary school for 25 to 30 hours per week. While I was working in the Iraq, the students that I taught that attended school, as we call it, attended for 14 hours per week, which is a market difference. Curriculum provided is limited, Eurocentric and arguably alienating for the Syrian children who have arrived following traumatic experiences, something that the teachers have no training in. In line with Ingram's argument, children are encouraged to define themselves against and in contrast to the white westernised people they now live amongst but are separate from. They learn about Irish people but they don't integrate with them. The refugee student is other in relation to the Irish students. Parents receive little useful information on the education of their children and when one family sought to enrol their child in the local primary school, they were referred back to the centre management. This is despite having full documentation and legal rights to attend that school. He remained in the class with me for a considerable length of time before they moved to their own home. Iraqs and direct provision centres are examples of institutionalisations which maintain traditional colonial power structures. Westernised meals are served at set times. Um, all residents must be on site by a curfew each night. Highly skilled professionals are prohibited from working or even looking for employment. The list of rules goes on and on. Locked doors, closed gates and security guards, which we mentioned previously and define the laundries, and something that we condemn, are not totally, not totally alien within these new institutions. As a teacher within the Iraq, I was given a code for the electric gate, whereas the residents who lived there were not. In order for them to move freely in and out, and freely in inverted commas, they had to ask for permission for the gate to be open, they had to sign a letter, and they had to state exactly what they were doing. A policy of segregation and confinement is now established which maintains the desired balance of power. The repeated use of the word crisis in relation to the refugee situation in Ireland and globally by both the media and politicians allows for such examples of practices becoming norms of conventions within organisations and the loss of independence 
the apathy resulting from the same to occur. Because we're in a crisis, we have to do something. These are the measures we're going to put in place. In this regard, Deleuze and Guterres believe that language is a means of exerting power, and it reads very true. This is applicable to the laundries also with similar language of persuasion and representation featuring prominently in newspaper articles from the 50s and 60s. So we're replicating the same mistakes. Uh, during the 50s and 60s, the newspaper articles that I sourced, they followed a similar suit. They commended the religious orders for their work with hopeless cases. They implored the general population to contribute financially um, through donations. Women and refugees, both now and in the past, are too often presented as people to be feared. So we've got prostitutes, fallen women, different race, religion, etc., etc., are pitied. They're in need of saving, salvation, redemption. There is no existence beyond they, beyond the fixed representations placed on these groups, which, according to Heidegger, is highly detrimental to authentic ethical being. Ingram would propose that language is founded on division between signifier and signified, with male whiteness being the master signifier. In effect, through accepting and buying into this one-dimensional narrative as a society as whole, we continue to be complicit in the silencing of women and refugees. For too long, marginalised people have been spoken of, about or for through representations which enforced silence. Returning to Heidegger, who argues we only come to know the world through handling it, we can see that the segregation and isolation of refugees in Ireland under current institutionalised practices and the language which surrounds them is highly detrimental to their ontological existence of the individual person, with the same applicable to Irish women also. In relation to Irish women in contemporary Ireland, I don't know that I need to say much in light of the death of Emma Vic Vahuna <coughs> on Sunday, her burial here in Maynooth on Wednesday as well speaking. More than I could actually say. Um, but added to this was the other victim of the smear test scandal who died on Sunday, who chose to remain anonymous. We also have Sabita Halpanaver, whose totally preventable death made headlines around the world due to the lack of care she received because of legislation. What I will say, however, is that the smear test scandal presents a clear snapshot of how females and their bodies and health are still controlled and devalued. The Scali report is clear in its condemnation of the deliberate exclusion of women from knowledge about their own health care and attempts to silence them. This is almost identical to the previous scandals discussed earlier in the presentation and begs the question, have we learned nothing from the mistakes of our past? The government's decision to outsource smear tests to America was based on saving money rather than saving lives. As with many incidents before, women were coerced into silence through firstly lack of information and secondly through financial settlements, used almost as bribes to keep the dirty secrets locked away. Thankfully, some women like Emma, Vicky and other activists and campaigners refused to take this route of compliance and submission. They reclaimed their own bodies through telling their stories and thus regained a voice. In terms of education, the limited gendered subject choice offered to girls in some schools around the country is not only restrictive, but a further inscription of patriarchal ideology that seeks conformity and desires to represent females in a certain way. To conclude, for many women and refugees, silence was still, was and still is, a safe space to inhabit, both fearing the repercussions that speaking out against institutionalization may have. While institutionalisation may have changed, adapted and in some cases ceased, 
the impact of the historical degradation and silence of women, silencing of women and refugees continues to have significant implications for both of these marginalised groups of people in contemporary Irish society, as highlighted by the examples I chose to discuss. And there was lots more I could have picked. Ingram would suggest that race and sex are essentially a question of ethics, and an ethical imbalance in regard to the treatment of women and refugees still exists in Ireland. While we are witnessing some attempts to be heard and reclaim voice from within the refugee and female communities, it's only when we as a nation learn from the mistakes of the past that detrimental and deliberate silencing techniques carried out through institutionalisation will cease and another way of knowing, telling, speaking and becoming will be possible for women and refugees in Ireland. Thank you.